everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information anytime and anywhere? I hope right here on The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Please note that this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not promote personal medical advice. For that, please check with your trusted healthcare professional. So today, we're going to be talking about something interesting in infectious disease. I've always personally been very interested in infectious disease, and it's actually one of the reasons I went into medicine. My um, advanced fellowship training was actually in immunology, allergy, and infectious disease in New York City. I kind of always wanted to be this medical detective, but I think my guest today turned out to be the true medical detective. Uh, as I've mentioned before in the podcast, I trained during the height of the AIDS epidemic in the mid-80s, 1980s, and 1990s. And, um, you know, and more currently, we were really dealing a lot with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I've seen patients who unfortunately have had long-haul COVID. So it seems like throughout my career, viruses have taken a center stage in infectious disease world. And of course, viruses are easily transmitted. They can go fast. They can be dangerous. And of course, we all know about bacteria. But there's another type of infection that is quickly alarming doctors, and it's fungal infections. And again, going back to my prior training in medical school, I took about six months of microbiology in my second year of medical school, and about one hour, I think, was devoted to fungal or what we call mycotic diseases. So I guess at the time, those diseases were considered to be rare and not too dangerous. You know, again, think like toenail fungus or jock itch, you know, so nobody was dying from that. So they figured, let's not give too much attention to this. But what was eye-opening to me, though, again, going back to my hospital training, was that when I was seeing uh, AIDS patients in the hospital, they were developing all types of rare, strange, life-threatening fungal infections, which got me thinking a lot about fungal infections for many years to come. And it's something actually I still deal a lot with in my practice, which we'll get into later. So finally, I really want to introduce my guest today, Dr. Tom Chiller. I mean... All I have to say is he's the head of the CDC's branch on mycotic diseases, which has to do with fungal diseases. You cannot get a better expert than that. And I'm really excited to ask him a lot of questions and learn more from myself. So it's with really a lot of excitement. I welcome Dr. Tom Chiller to the podcast. It's great to be with you. And thank you so much for that kind introduction. It's great to hear about your interest and um, your background as well. So looking forward. So the first thing I like to usually ask all my different uh, specialists and experts is why they went into a particular field. So I'm going to get yours as a twofold question. Why did you choose infectious disease as your area of specialty? And then why did you go down that rabbit hole of fungal diseases, especially as we talked about earlier, quote, the sexy area of infectious diseases was the viruses. And of course, there's always the bacteria. So what, what took you down this path? Yeah, great questions. And, you know, thanks for asking about, you know, my background. Uh, You mentioned immunology was one of your areas of training. My father was sort of one of the founders of tolerance. And so I grew up with a family of immunologists uh, sitting around my dinner table. And I remember Jonas Salk coming over. Holy moly. These guys talking about T cells and B cells and the immune system when it was really just being discovered. And they were so and I was a you know a small kid growing up, and they were just so excited about it, and um, just to like I just got enthralled by them, their excitement, sitting around the dinner table for hours after dinner and just talking immunology, and so I think you know that sort of intrigued me to this sort of exuberance and excitement in the field, and of course immunology is all about infection, you know, and yeah, it's a um, huge answer and other things, yeah, but certainly was... infectious diseases, and so I just found that natural predilection for science and, 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 and just continued interest. And so as I pursued my um, a college education, I majored in biochemistry. And then after college, um, I, I, I had lived with um, a colleague of mine who was from Peru, from South America, and I didn't know much about South America, to be honest with you. And so I looked at the map of South America and long story short, there was a country in the middle called Paraguay. And I decided that I was going to go to Paraguay, meet my fellow Americans of the South and learn about the infectious diseases down there. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up 
being, you know, getting connected with several different groups that were working in Paraguay. Those are longer stories that are fun that's to interesting. tell. But that's what got me intrigued. And I down there, I studied leishmaniasis and toxoplasmosis and Chagas disease, all these fascinating, you know, parasitic diseases. And I got really enthralled with those infections. And actually, when I applied to medical school, I applied from Paraguay and I ended up going to Tulane. And Tulane has oh, a joint degree, yeah. right? They yeah, have a they joint very degree famous in infectious medicine. disease department. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, travel so medicine. Yeah, that really got me started. Oh, and at wow. Tulane, I met amazing tropical disease researchers, mm-hmm. and, and so and then and then as I continued my training, I ended up going to Stanford, and one of the uh, faculty members that was available to me for my fellowship was this guy named David Stevens, who was a mycology expert. And, you uh-huh. know, parasites and fungi, similar in their sort of complex. Yeah, we're going to I want to get into that, too, in a little yeah. bit. So, yeah, you're giving me all the, the, the leads. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so that's I ended up doing a fellowship at Stanford wow. with an emphasis on mycology. And that's what got me into. This oh, thing. OK. So that's how you got it. Amazing story. Amazing that you grew up with that. You know, I do have to commend you also, too, because you obviously went where the action is. Not everybody. A lot of times, as you know, there are academics that study all these things and they never leave their cozy lab or. You know, it's not, like, it's not like an anthropologist. Like, you know, you want to be, a, you know, an ar- I'm sorry, an archaeologist. You want to be an archaeologist, you got to go where the digs are. Otherwise, nothing too exciting is going to happen. And, you know, it's one of the funny things too, you just reminded me. I, you know, I did training through Columbia Presbyterian Hospital System. And one of my attendings, professors, whatever you want to call them, uh, gosh, I'm blanking on his name. Oh, Henry Schaffeld. Okay. But, and he was an older one, uh, an older doctor at the time I was training, but was so fascinating. He had the best stories because the military took him, you know, he was stationed in World War II overseas, but he was like in India, you know, and so he came back and he actually was a pulmonologist. He did a lot of training at Bellevue Hospital, which is very famous for their chest disease ward. But I'll never forget when he was like the attending on our rotations. I mean, he would just sit there for a half hour talking about all these infectious diseases that he had seen firsthand and that he knew so well. And it, it, it kind of was like romanticizing medicine. I mean, thinking of the days when, you know, you had to battle all these infections just to stay alive. I mean, here in the United States, you know, <laughs> we were kind of privileged in a lot of ways. So, but yeah, your story was interesting. Okay, let's get into this whole area about fungal diseases, but I do want to clarify it for our listeners, and even probably for myself to some degree, as they said, even though I deal with this, you know, a lot of the public and, and even doctors, I know like my colleagues, are confused the difference between fungal diseases and even yeast infections, and if you're even willing to touch on mold, because that's what people think about mold, fungi, what are all this stuff? So can you explain, hopefully as clearly as possible, the difference? So let's start with fungi versus yeast you know, and, uh, and then we can maybe move on to mold. It's something that honestly, I, I deal with my practice every week. So you may sure. find that surprising, but I'll, I'll tell that later on because you're, you're the guest. I'm the, the host. So, <laughs> uh, so how would you define, you know, uh, a fungal infection disease versus um, a yeast infection? Yeah, great. I think those are, those are good questions. Uh, absolutely. So I think the way to think about it is fungi or fungal diseases, fungal infections, fungi in general, are the general term for all things fungus. All right. So when we say fungal infections, we're including everything under that genre. And that is, Mm. if you think about the fungal kingdom, I mean, it's an entire kingdom of organisms, even, you know, as you know, humans are not a kingdom, they're within a kingdom. And so fungi uh, occupy this entire kingdom of organisms. There's some estimation that there could be between two, three, four million species out there, even only even though only about one hundred and twenty thousand are sort of recognized. And of those, only a few hundred cause human disease. Hmm. So. There's this huge kingdom of organisms, but very few are actually causing these so-called fungal infections, fungal disease. Mm -hmm. When we talk about yeast versus mold, they're really talking about sort of structural differences in some in some big families. So the yeast are classically these round budding cells. And that's where you'll hear the word yeast um, and especially things, species like 
Candida. Yeah, we're going to get into right? that. Saccharomyces, right? Yeah. you know, bakers, yeast, saccharomyces, brewer's yeast. The molds are actually typically more of these elongated structures. And and that's what and, and people think of hyphae when they think of mold. Um, of course, there are lots of different structures within both of these categories. But if I was going to generalize it, I would sort of say the yeast are generally round looking and they're often more more involved with mammals and insects and other things and the molds are often more of an environmental form of fungi that exist out in the environment now neither of those two things i'm saying are exclusive and that's the one thing about the fungal kingdom is there's a lot of crisscross but in general just think of both yeast and mold as fungi and i think that's the best way to describe it those oh, okay. terms are better thought of mm. is as people who are doing taxonomy and studying right fungi but they're all fungal infections okay um okay that that's really helpful and then i want to get a little bit more specific uh cuz i think it hopefully will clarify things for people so and for myself because I, I thought about this for a very long time as i mentioned even in the introduction I'm, i've been involved with the immunology the allergy and infectious disease and it's so interesting how fungi do both compared to other things like I'll, I'll give an example for listeners so you know we all know if you get a strep infection or you know strep pneumonia infection you get an infection um and you need, in certain cases, antibiotics to clear that up. And again, in my training, it's interesting, fungi such as aspergillosis, that's, you know, uh, a common fungi, um, that in, in my area of expertise can do both. I mean, in an immune compromised patient, like an AIDS patient or a patient who's getting chemotherapy, they can get what's called like an invasive aspergillosis or even like pulmonary, I guess, where it comes in and it's causing an infection. But also in, again, the other hat that I wear, the allergy component, some of these um, fungi can cause allergic issues, meaning they don't become invasive. They don't cause someone to, you know, they're not going to cause them to die. They just will suffer a lot, you know, from the symptoms. So uh, I, I hope I can, there's a, something that can be answered here. Why is that, Dr. Chiller? Why, why do we understand why sometimes, is it the host, you know, the person, it's his own immune system, or is it the, um, the nature of that particular fungus? You know, again, things like aspergillosis. I'm trying to think what else offhand. Um, that's the one that kind of really comes to mind is the dual. I think that's a great, yeah, I think aspergillus uh, is a great example of that. And, 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 and probably the one we know the most about, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we consider aspergillus a mold, but again, it's a fungus. And yes, I think that we know a lot more about that infectious part that you talked about. So we know that we're inhaling aspergillus right now, both you and I, right. It's aspergillus like, it's, it's, right. is everywhere, as you mm -hmm. know. So, and yet we're not sick and we're also not developing allergies. At least you and I are at least right not. I mean, not right now. Maybe we do have some allergies to it, but we're not um, developing it at least right now. So clearly we're exposed to this organism, you know, commonly in our daily lives. But thankfully, very few people get the actual infection. And those who do are generally, as you mentioned, immunocompromised in some way. It could be we're making them immunocompromised by putting them on immunosuppressant drugs because they have a transplanted organ and we don't want that organ to fail. So we, you know, we control their immune system and, 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 and decrease it. And that puts us at risk. Or there could be uh, a, another immunocompromising condition, like you just mentioned, HIV chemotherapy due to a cancer, et cetera, you know, or there may be some other innate immune defect that we just don't know about or understand. And, and those are generally the people that get the infectious form of aspergillus, where it does come in through the lung and then invade into the alveoli, the small little cells in the lung, and then can get into the bloodstream and can go to other organs and cause really devastating disease. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very fatal disease if it gets, if it progresses. You know, when our immune systems are not protecting our, ourselves from these fungi, it's hard to treat them even with good antifungal drugs. And so it's a real challenge in these patients. Well, um, why Why are they more dangerous in some ways? I mean, again, I remember like, you know, being as an intern and, you know, we'd be giving a, a you know, a patient that was, let's say, on chemotherapy or like had leukemia or something. And I remember being so frightened over the weekend, like the attendings basically said to us, 
you know, uh, okay, oh, this patient just grew out, you know, um, uh, grew out aspergillosis or one of the other dangerous invasive fungi. We were giving them like amphotericin, which yep. is very potent. And it was just like a frightening thing. Like the patient would go through all the chills and everything. Why are these fungi so dangerous when they get invasive into the bloodstream? I, mean, I know nothing's good to have in your bloodstream, but I mean, are they even more dangerous than bacterial infections only because they don't respond as well to medicine? Is that what it is or... Yes. You know, I think it's a couple different reasons. One is they are, um, you know, these are complex organisms, unlike the bacteria that are more simple. They're complex and they're very hard to kill. Um, so I, I think one of the things is we, you know, they're hard to kill once they invade. They're hard to get at. We have limited drugs and the drugs, as you just one of the drugs you mentioned, amphotericin, has been around forever. We really still only have three major classes of antifungal drugs that we use to treat these really invasive yeah. infections. So I think we're limited in our drugs. We're limited in the fact that not all these drugs kill these organisms readily. There's resistance developing. And if you get some resistance, you're left with even more limited choices. And you're also dealing usually with a patient that has no immune system. And, and so I think that, you know, when we are treating bacterial infections in people that are, you know, so-called healthy, that don't have immune problems, we get the benefit of being able to have the immune system help you as you're right. killing off the bacteria. When you're trying to kill off the fungi and there's no immune system to help you, it's really challenging. Really and so vulnerable. what you'll see is these patients will do better as their immune system starts coming back. And a lot of time, that's when we see very good success in treatment is we're getting some immune function back. And as I was just mentioning to you, you know, we're breathing in aspergillus right now, but our neutrophils in our lungs are keeping that infection at bay all the time. So a functioning immune system is our best defense against these organisms. And that's why most of us, thankfully, don't get aspergillus and don't get invasive disease. You were that's talking about the allergic side, on the other hand. We don't know a lot about that, to be quite honest with you. I mean, yeah. you know, we definitely know that people get something called allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, right? That's probably that's what you're cases, referring yeah. to. We also know that there seems to be in a certain percentage of those with asthma that if you give them an antifungal medicine, there seems to be a certain percentage of those that get better. Yeah. So there's some question is, is aspergillus contributing to that or is it another fungus that you're inhaling? But 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 honestly, it's 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 still relatively unknown the exact mechanisms and why one person versus the other gets that sort of allergic disease. So that's really still a big unknown. Um. Just remind me into because this is a kind of important point I want to bring out. Cryptococcus is that also considered a a, um, a fungi or is that a parasite? No, uh, there are there you know there is a cryptosporidiosis that is uh, considered yeah. a parasite. That's a diarrheal, a GI organism. But no, crypto. Um, like when you got cryptococcus meningitis, yeah, right. Cryptococcus neoformans and imitus, some of the, I mean, and, and yes. excuse me, and gadii, some of these species are absolutely fungi. And oh, they are right. Okay, so yes, they're what absolutely I want to ask this, like also like with histoplasmosis, like what really made me think back in the day, can to when I was doing my training with, during the AIDS epidemic, like I'd see a patient that we would come in, you know, had meningitis, you know, we and uh, it turns out, you know, we do the lumbar puncture and then yep. stain it, and they had cryptococcus, which again, yep. it was a special treatment, different than, you know, like a bacterial meningitis. And I kept on thinking to myself, where did this patient get exposed to cryptococcus, meaning they hadn't traveled outside of the United States to some unusual area or whatever to. And I started to think, because nobody really ever discussed it in rounds, whatever, what you just said was like, are we, do we all inhale these things like on a regular basis? And again, it's part of our microbiome and it's kept in check by our cells. And then when the immune system dips from either having something like HIV or uh, a strong medication like chemotherapy or any kind of immune suppressant, the, these type of fungi take on a new life of their own. Is, is that correct? So it's not really, no, I think mission is so different than, you know, cause when people think about getting pneumonia, Oh, I must've been near somebody that had pneumonia right. or, you know, obviously right. a virus, but this is sort of like, it's the transmission is not typically person to person, which we will get into this, some, some newer ones that it is could be an issue, but typically it's more self-induced. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, I mean, there are two ways in which you're going to get cryptococcus. There is, and and so for a person with HIV whose immune system is slowly deteriorating and the kind of patients you were seeing, 
you know, we think they absolutely are inhaling all of us inhaling this as a child. I mean, we're expo- mm. crypto is everywhere. So it is. Yeah. is everywhere in every country mm. and it's in the soil again. So right. we're, we're, you know, we're inhaling it. We're exposed to it. We keep it in check. But then somehow when you, you know, you're as your immune system goes down and you lose the ability to keep it in check with your T cells, then it can sort of bubble up. And I think the still the big question is, where is it hiding? You know, like, where is it in our bodies? There's all kinds of debate about that. It's not like there's an obvious source. Some people think it's mm. hidden within the macrophages or other places. So, but you're absolutely right. In the majority of people that are getting cryptococcal disease, especially in their, in their, in their brain, as you know, it has a predilection for that. Um, we think this is a recurrence or a or a reactivation reactivation yeah not an acute disease now some people are indeed getting acute disease as well Mm -hmm. but we think that's the minority in the case of cryptococcal disease in this way we think it's a reactivation because it's just classic the immune system goes down and then there have been some studies that have helped prove this where they've they've found the strains of the cryptococcus that was causing the infection came from a completely different continent to where these people were at the time when they got the infection. And in fact, they hadn't been back to that continent for 20 years. So there were some studies that really showed that the crypto they had that was growing in their spines, you know, that was growing in their mm-hmm. brains, it was causing the infection, didn't come from the area where they were living. Wow. This was Europe. It came from Africa. And so that helped us to say really, oh, wow, these are reactivation infections to a large extent. And yes, you're absolutely right. We're exposed to these things all the time. Okay. Uh, the next fungi or yeast, actually, I want to ask you about is some sort of near and dear to my heart, only because I deal with this on a regular basis. So I really want your interesting take on this. Um, as you are familiar with, for the last decade or so, the gut microbiome has gotten a lot of attention. And obviously we know there's, you know, there's respiratory microbiome, there's all kinds of microbiomes in the body. We are a balance of our, our good and ba- bad bacteria, you know, what we call a quote bad bacteria in, you know, uh, in our, uh, especially in our mucosal membranes. Um, so I want to first ask you about candida albicans. Um, and I'll tell you something interesting that I see in my practice, and uh, it, it was it's, it was very controversial for a long time. But I I kind of seeing a lot of these interesting patients came to my own conclusions. Um, so just for our listeners who may be aware, you know, candida albicans is a part of our normal microbiome, as you know, and there are situations, of course, again when you're immune compromised, where this can overgrow. Obviously, there must be some kind of balance where the wiping out of maybe certain bacteria in the body allows um, the candida to overgrow, such as like in thrush, or I just saw somebody the other day who had some uh, esophageal candida. Um, Dr. Chill, I see a lot in my practice too. This is very interesting, and I want to see your opinion about this. I see a lot of patients that unfortunately who've been on antibiotics sometimes for months or years. They, and you'll say, well, why would they be on that? It's probably not a good reason. A lot of them were treated for acne, who had, uh, you know, for a long time, dermatologists were using things like doxycycline to control acne in young adults. Um, unfortunately, with the, the Lyme disease proliferation, a lot of patients were on pretty heavy doses and strong doses of antibiotics. And I started to see in my practice patients that were getting a whole range of symptoms, you know, ranging from GI symptoms with terrible bloating and either reflux, constipation. Uh, the women clearly could get like vaginitis. I mean, I'm talking about chronic persistent vaginitis. And then there were some patients even developing, I, I called it later levels of um, the stages of candida, of, um, of uh, fatigue or even pain. And, you know, this was a very controversial um, topic, in, especially in conventional medicine. But one of the things when I start seeing all these patients and treating them, I'll get into a little bit with antifungals and, and doing certain other things to try to rebalance them. And they were getting better, which was I used a little bit as my North Star was the work of I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Alessio Fasano at Harvard. He's like the big uh, celiac disease expert in the, in the country, maybe the world. And 
what was interesting with Dr. Fasano, and I've had him on the podcast in the past, was that he felt like in his patients that had celiac disease, that um, they had um, leaky gut, you know, which means transition, you know, along the um, intestinal pathway. And this, this is why these patients, again, the even patients that I saw who had celiac, which, you know, were less common than I think my candidate patients, you know, were getting all of these extra intestinal symptoms, such as joint pain, asthma. I mean, it was, so a lot of them didn't have very prominent GI symptoms. So I want to, I guess I, my, my two-part question is, and it's funny, this just came out in an article in one of my journals. I don't know if you can see this, but it was a really good diagram of, it was showing the, a healthy gut immune system with candida albicans and saccharomyces cervatia. I'm sorry if it's hard to see. And no, then it's it good. Show, and then it showed, I, I love this diagram, and then it showed, you know, what happens, this was particularly was what's called a, an IgA deficiency, you know, where it was, we right. know, someone has got you know, low IgA. And so the candida proliferate, um, you know, I hope some of the, the viewers who see this on YouTube can see this. And, and I always tell my patients who are looking at this, because they don't, obviously, they don't know the science, but the little snowflake objects are the immunoglobulins. That's their depiction of that and how that's, you know, you know, increasing to, um, to combat the candida overgrowth. So I, I wanted to ask your thoughts before we get to some, a little more serious candida type of infection. What, what is your thoughts about or any of your experience, obviously being at the CDC, about candida albicans causing um, causing disease? Well, I mean, uh, as you know, our focus is generally invasive disease. And okay. so, you know, so, so we don't have a lot of emphasis um, on the overgrowth syndromes and, you know, the various other sort of maybe toxic nature of I would of, call it hypersensitivity that's yeah, why I, I try to, you know, because it, it's almost a little bit like the aspergillus you know like, yes, you know, exactly. the, exactly. you know it's a you know I think the better term you know because it's not like you said right it's not invasive uh but it's although it's like, interesting to me because you know the the I mean let's go back to the basics of candida you know, in the bloodstream. And it, mm -hmm. and you do feel, you know, that, that, that some of the highest risk factors are antibiotics, right? You're getting broad spectrum antibiotics, killing off all the good and bad bacteria, if there are any, in the gut, leaving candida and, and maybe other yeast species. Those translocate out maybe through this leaky gut type phenomena. But in this case, we're sort of inducing potentially a leaky gut because they're in right. the hospital, they're right. sick. We're giving them these broad spectrum antibiotics. And then that candida gets into the bloodstream and causes bloodstream infections. And like, as you know, can cause mm. sepsis. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and so, so, so there's something going on there as well. And if we believe that this is sort of a mild version of that, this hypersensitivity, it is interesting to me that if the candida is translocating out and getting into the bloodstream, that somehow either our body is keeping it in check while it's there, or it's just transiently in there and then it leaves, mm. um, or or you know, or there's something else going on because we do know that the worst outcome of that right is sepsis, is cancer, yeah, right, bloodstream right. infection, and these patients have a mortality anywhere from twenty to forty percent in the hospital. Yeah. They get this disease, and that's obviously what we're focusing on right. when it comes to candida. Right. But I do believe, as you're saying, it's it's obviously not as simple. It's not just like okay. You treat them with antibiotics that, that gets into your blood and then they get candidemia. There are other things happening there all the time. And mm. I couldn't agree with you more that the microbiomes that we're now finally studying and really, really still scratching the microbiome surface, not only of the gut, the lung, the skin is a huge microbiome. Mm. But I even like to think of the, the environmental microbiome. What's out there in the soil? What's in the healthcare mm. environment? What's mm. in your office right now? You know, there's all these microbiomes interacting with us all the mm -hmm. time and then and that are changing our microbiome. And then, of course, everything we eat changes our microbiome to a certain extent. So, yes, yes, so, so I couldn't agree true. with you more that there's fascinating stuff going on. Yeah. It's certainly not my area of expertise. No okay. Way. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it, but yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate but, it because obviously you're coming from, and I understand the really intensive, most dangerous, but I do yes. think there's a spectrum of this. I mean, that's what my, you know, my experience over 30 years, you know, and thinking about these problems and seeing these patients, you know, uh, and I, when I talk to colleagues, I try to really, talk with them on a scientific level. I mean, you right. can't, you know, not everything is invasive. There's, you know, again, and I teach the medical students immunology at the medical school here in New York, there's a whole spectrum 
of an immune responses. So, okay. And I I totally agree with you. And I, I, you know, I don't, I don't profess to be an expert in that in, in that area, but it well, you're not seeing you're, you're getting called. You're getting yeah. we're going to get to. You get called when it's like you know, you know, five star, you know, uh, fire alarm. alarm time, right? You yeah. know, yeah. all right. Yeah. I want to get to something which I think is one of also the main reasons that uh, fungal diseases have been overlooked. There's not that many great tests, or at least easily accessible. You know, all of us know. I mean, today I just bought a whole bunch because I'm traveling. I bought some rapid strep t- tests, rapid COVID tests. I got a rapid RSV test. You name it. I got a rapid influenza test. I got it all. I'm a traveling infectious disease thing because I know to avoid getting sick when I'm traveling is not the easiest thing. But what would you say to either the patients who are worried if they've had a chronic issue? Again, not necessarily immediate life-threatening. Uh, and also for the, maybe the doctors listening to this, what are some of the best tests to order to confirm um, a fungal diagnosis? You know, I mean, yeah. even a typical, even a patient who's typical chronic cough, maybe low-grade fevers for several months. Yep. What would yeah, you tell I think them? there's, yeah. I, I, I think, I mean, let me start by just acknowledging what you said in that, in that, you know, I think even all of us as healthcare providers um, you know, have, you know, have this sort of challenge and fear with fungal infections because number one, they've got strange names and the names keep changing. Number two, the the the, the diagnostics are very limited and we'll talk about that in a second. Number three, you know, the treatments are sometimes rather toxic. I mean, you know, we, we've dubbed amphotericin and amphoterable for a reason, even though it's, right. I think it's better now in some of the new formulations. And then, and then there are bad outcomes. And so managing our patients, we just... We don't really want to know about fungal infections because they're just challenging. So back to the diagnostics, you know, I think there are different categories of patients, but let me give you a perfect example of something we just put out actually just in the last um, a few weeks. And that is some algorithms to evaluate fungal pneumonia. We have some diseases in this country that we call, we like to call endemic fungal diseases, but I I like to think of them as sort of geographic fungal diseases. They're sort of diseases that exist generally in certain geographic areas. And the classic ones that we think of in the United States are coccidioamycosis or valley fever, which is mainly in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Southwest. But we've seen now moving up into the Pacific Northwest. Then we have a disease called histoplasmosis, which I think you just mentioned, and then another disease called blastomycosis. And these three sort of geographic fungi, they exist you know, in the United States, not in all states, but certainly in a lot of them. In fact, histo is probably everywhere. Mm. These, these, these diseases can cause a very typical sort of uh, upper respiratory type picture where you do have some fever and you have a cough and you feel like you have COVID or you feel like you have the flu. And in fact, patients often go in and they get diagnosed um, with a walk-in pneumonia and they get antibiotics and those antibiotics don't really do much for them, right? Because they have a fungal pneumonia. And so what I like to say and, and educate both healthcare providers and patients is that you know, yeah, you do need to think fungus in some of these situations. And there are some tests that actually work to diagnose those. There are some, there's a basic coxie antibody test that can really help. There's a, so it is. So, so you, so I could, let's say if I was seeing a patient that got referred to me, let's uh, say you were in California, like, you know, or you in Arizona where we know we see a lot of valley fever and you're getting, or let's say you're in New York. And I mean, we just, a lot of times I have patients that come from all over. Exactly. We just had an outbreak amongst move from, from Arizona to New York. Absolutely. We just, and I was going to say, we just had an outbreak amongst high school students that were doing work in Tijuana mm-hmm. on houses, helping build houses. And they were from New York and mm-hmm. they all developed coccidiomycosis, valley fever, wow. because they were exposed to it down there. And same thing, fever, went to the hospital, doctor gave them antibiotics. Then they, they didn't get better, went back. They were hospitalized, more antibiotics, broader antibiotics. And then finally someone said, oh, where were you doing, you know, over the last you know month? Oh, I was in Tijuana. And then someone said, oh, I wonder about valley fever. And so they tested him and sure enough, they were positive. So, yes. So they did, a, so they did an antibody test. Is that you can correct? run antibody tests for valley fever and, and they're pretty pretty good. They're not perfect, but they're pretty good. They're pretty accurate. And if they're positive, you can 
pretty much assume that it probably is valley fever. And there's no really other telltale signs. Like typically they don't get rashes. They don't dispute them. They can. Does it, they can get the rashes. Sputum, but doesn't you know, look different than any exactly. other. Exactly. You can get those rashes. Are, viral yeah. infections, right? Yeah. As you know, you can get them. Yeah. So unfortunately, it is a very nonspecific presentation, these fungal pneumonia. That's what's so tricky. Yeah. And it's, it's really important because you don't want to be just like your other patients. You don't want to be taking antibiotics if you don't need them. And you certainly want to get the right diagnosis as early as possible so that you can get managed appropriately. And some of these patients might actually need an antifungal. Um, do they, do, would you say, I, I hate for it to come to that, but hopefully the antibody tests are are good enough because otherwise do they have to go to like a biopsy, you know, like where, you know, usually the so. antibody tests are good enough. There's not much to biopsy there because, you know, the, these, 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 these. Well, sometimes you'll see a lesion maybe in the lung or yeah, something like yeah. that. If there was something on the skin or something like that, yeah. that would suggest that they might actually have a disseminated infection. And then I would be yeah. worried about them being immunocompromised in some way. Um, you know, you can all with some of these endemic organisms, if you're exposed to a large, a large inoculum, and I'll give you an example. We had we were dealing with an outbreak where we had a bunch of 20 somethings working to clear bat guano. And we know that bat guano is oh, a risk. No. Yeah. They were clearing out bat guano from a cave, from a from a tunnel, you know, like sort of that was built to access a dam. And the bat guano was probably a three feet high, and they just were in there digging. Oh god. And all 20 of these guys got really bad histoplasmosis and including one unfortunately died and, oh. and three or four were in, were in the ICU and and they were completely healthy, but they just breathed in so much in such a concentrated way oh. that it overwhelmed their immune system. Was this here in the United States or was this in like No, China? this was actually in the Dominican Republic. Oh, wow. And so they didn't, they didn't. Oh, there was no masks them. on or anything. They just no sent masks, these guys in no. there. Oh, no my masks. God. Right. Okay. So these infections can be, you know, can be very deadly if you are exposed to a tremendous amount. We had a woman, I remember not too long ago, who was immunocompromised, who was in Puerto Rico and went into a cave, you know, one of these famous caves to, to just sort of explore. Right, and right, for right. For whatever reason, she decided to put her face down and like smell the bat guano. And oh. she, that was a bad idea. She was even compromised. And so she ended up getting disseminated histoplasmosis, um, uh, you know, but survived. But still, you know, those are the kind of things that, you know, one thinks about uh, in, in, in certain areas. And we can diagnose those. There are good tests for histoplasmosis, a urinary antigen. How about also sputum if they are coughing? Can we catch that sometimes? It's, it's hard. Tough. It's tough. really hard deep, to diagnose sputum. We're hoping yeah. that tests could be developed. You know, we've looked at things even like and urine, and urine, nothing things. helps. Urine, unlikely. Urine yeah. is good for histoplasmosis because there's an antigen that's secreted in urine that works okay. really well. But that that's probably the only one in urine right now. Um, mm -hmm. there, the, the the other two are mainly in in serum. Well, oh, what about blastomycosis? Is that also good serum test? Probably? It's also a serum test. It's that's probably the worst of the three. Um, worst to get or the worst hardest to diagnose? Hardest to diagnose. Not yeah. a great test. Yeah, um, but it does exist. And there is also an antigen test that you can use in, in, in urine, but again, not, not the best test. So, okay. you know, it's one of those things sometimes that you have to, you have to be thinking about, you got to send the test. Certainly a positive test is going to really indicate that you're probably dealing with a fungal pneumonia and not a regular pneumonia. And I think that's really important. So, you know, you know, what's really, tricky. and you know, Dr. Chill, I think what's really tricky, you know, as I said, again, like training in the hospital and, and part of my fellowship infectious disease, there were a lot of really good infectious disease doctors who would get called in on cases. But if you think about it in outpatient ambulatory care, um, infectious disease doctors are a little bit on the periphery. They tend to deal with the more sicker hospital patients. So it's general doctors who may yes. not be thinking about this or yes. know the appropriate testing to do. So this could go on for a long time until somebody exactly. gets really sick. And you know what really concerns me too? I've mentioned this other times too, because like, again, I, I like to think like an immunologist. You know, so many of the new uh, autoimmune um, biologic medications are immunosuppressive. You know, people don't think about that, but especially when you're on it long term. Um, and the other thing also, I'm, I'm always, my, my alert is always on when people are on those very strong proton pump inhibitors for long periods of time, 
which as you know, again, change the microbiome. Change the and the microbiome. I think makes, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so, no, so those, the, so the biologic agents, like the classic one that we think of, because it's probably one of the oldest are the anti TNF yeah. inhibitors. They absolutely put you at higher risk for these geographic fungal, these endemic fungal diseases that we were just talking about. And yeah. you hear that, you know, I remember when I first heard the commercials for them that you see that like, ask your doctor about fungal infections. So I, I do think that's important that, you know, the patient's, themselves are the best advocates you know they right. need to ask hey right. you think right. i could have a fungal infection i mean ask right. right there are tests that we can order and you're absolutely right the primary care and urgent care docs are the ones seeing these people with these acute respiratory diseases so our algorithms that we just wrote up and put out there are really targeted toward them because you're yeah. absolutely right those are the yeah. ones it's not going to be the infectious disease right. because by the time they get to you guys it's it, they're it's usually in the hospital and pretty sick yeah yeah Let's talk about the fungal medications. You you took away my line. Yeah, I, I remember, as I said, when I was in uh, residency, you said, oh, no, this guy's going to need the Amphoterrible. And I was like, yes. what is this thing? And then when we gave it somebody, I saw him shaking and whatever. I was like, oh, dear God, I never want to have to treat a patient with this. And then there was a huge breakthrough. I don't know if it was, you probably know better than I do, if it was in the 80s or so and 90s. And they started to come out with the oral antifungals, which was pretty exciting. You yes. know, uh, but there's a wide range. And, you know, I think the most common thing that especially women are familiar with is fluconazole or diflucan, which is used for vaginal yeast infections. Yep. But if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear your, uh, you know, your your take on. Actually, the whole range of it, Nystatin, which I use a lot, sure. and I'll tell you why after, fluconazole, and even the newer ones like vorconazole and posiconazole. Sure. So sure. take us through a little bit. You're, I mean, again, you're the super expert on um, how these should be used, which might be more appropriate. Because, again, like with antibiotics, you know, all doctors are trained. You know, the penicillins used to be the first line. Now there's a lot of right. resistance. Then right. there were the cephalosporins. Now we got all the quinolones. I mean, it was a whole, you know, and, and unfortunately, as you know, too, I mean, I, I was kind of fortunate I didn't fall into that trap. But, you know, you know, back in the day, especially when the drug companies were going around to doctor's offices, promoting promoting the latest and the newest antibiotic, didn't mean that's what people should be getting or being prescribed. You know, the older ones yep. work just fine. And then we got yep. all this resistance. So, yeah. So please take us through a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, Nystatin sure. versus fluconazole versus itraconazole. Sure. You know, I, for me, it's going to be a tremendous learning. Yeah. Sure. No, I mean, I think the, the best way to sort of start and look at it is, is for treating invasive some of these really nasty fungal diseases we really only have three classes of drugs right now we have the polyenes which are essentially which is essentially amphotericin b nystatin is a polyene but it's not absorbed so you're not going to use that to treat systemic infections you're going to use that to treat maybe thrush or some local do, do you like it for that though I and mean, do you find let's yeah, say if someone has absolutely. thrush or even some esophageal i just had a patient yeah, absolutely with but would it be like more like in a powder liquid form so you're actually coating the tongue yeah you I mean, know, it's, the not gonna, the it's not going to really get absorbed at all yes. so it's not going to have a systemic effect so that's you're really using it as it has to go where it has to go. The exactly. Top to of the, the area. It's used yeah. for fungal infections on the skin. Yeah. But again, if you're, you know, if someone has thrush, you really need like what they call the troches, the lozenges. Because exactly. If you swallow a nystatin pill and it goes right past your mouth, it's, it's just going to go right in and it's not going to help you. Wait, yeah. one other question too. The thrush, though, what we see, is it emanating from the lower uh, gut going up to the tongue in your knowledge? I mean, not necessarily. No? Not necessarily at all. It could okay. just be a local muco you know uh tongue and palate uh, phenomena and it doesn't have to be coming from the gi tract at all it could just okay. be something there that's local and then of course as you know if it does go down in the esophagus you get you can get bad so it doesn't come it doesn't go the reverse up i was for some reason i always thought like you know, with antibiotics or acid blockers like the proton pump inhibitors that it changed the microbiome and the candidate tracked up I mean, because the candidate, by the way, too, it's normally. I mean, they can the, try. I mean, they could come up. But remember, if I culture your urinized mouth right now, we have candida in it. So right. we have candida in our mouths at all we times. Do. Okay. In fact, that candida flora, so to speak, the microbiome in there can change over time. We know some species are actually more found in younger um, um, folks versus as you get older, you tend to switch species and you know, get, this isn't universal. And then there's probably some geographic differences as well as to which candida species are in your mouth. But yeah, I mean, it certainly could go up, it could go down, but it's gonna, it's it's in the entire tract. 
It is. And yes. is it mainly in one part, like the small intestine versus the stomach or anything? I'm just curious. Is there it's definitely not in you know, a stomach would be the probably the least place it is. It's going to yeah. be, you know, small intestine, colon and mouth. Uh, those are, and then and then, yeah, th- those are probably the major areas. And okay. I don't know the relative amounts. And I don't know if anyone really does, because it would be hard to really test that. Okay, let's go back to because you give the yeah. So back to the polyethylenes with the amphotericin. Polyethylenes is where the amphoterable, the amphotericin B is. The the, you know the next class are the triazoles. That's the diflucan, the fluconazole. You talked about there have been a bunch coming into that class, which we can talk about in a second. And then the final, the newest kid on the block, even though it's not very new, it's a couple decades old, is a class of drugs called the echinocandins. And this is a this has three different drugs in it for the most part, but they're all only IV. So, you know, the polyenes are only IV, although there is a new amphotericin B that's oral that is being in, in clinical trials now that actually looks really interesting. Um, with obviously does, a does lot that of not get absorbed? Like, is that, yes, that it's absorbed very local? well. They're using it to even treat. I saw recent data of from cryptomeningitis. So this is an oral drug used to treat a meningitis. That would be a pretty wow. phenomenal thing if it if it works. So I'm sort of excited about that. It's a, you know, they finally figured out a, a way to formulate amphotericin B so it's absorbed in the GI tract. So those three classes are really the main ones we have to treat the invasive infections. As you can imagine, you know, unlike bacteria where there are multiple, multiple classes, we're very limited. So if you lose one of those classes due to the resistance, let's say you have diflucan or, or triazole resistance, sometimes some of the newer let's say more advanced triazoles work, but I don't trust that very much because once you have a mechanism that sort of is pumping out triazoles, it often pumps them out for all of them and they have a predilection to be able to do that easier. So then you lose a class. Now you're down to two. Wait, can I just stop you on one thing though? One of the people that I work with, she was like a a infectious disease PhD and she's written a lot of She's written a book on yeast. It was very interesting. She says something to the effect, I just want to make sure this is correct, that like I think like fluconazole and I guess intraconazole, those are, as we know, like with bacteria, of static medications, yes. whereas the newer ones, voconazole and postconazole, those are sidal. Is that correct? We or think not really? pretty much all azoles well are static. Is static. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of, you know, but that's also a term, you know, so yeah. static and sidle, right? Does it kill the organism? Does it, it slow know, it down? When, yeah. Right. When the immune system is intact, a static drug works great, right? Because the immune yeah. system just mops it up. Right. But yes. We think of the azole, the triazole class as being a static class, the whole thing. Okay. Even the new ones. Where is terbenafine in this, by the way, too? Is that- terbenafine is a, is, a, is a completely different mechanism of action. It's a great drug, but once again, it doesn't get systemic. If you take a pill form of terbenafine, which of course is available, it goes immediately into the skin and nails, which is why it's a wonderful drug to treat ringworm, you know, jock itch, athlete's foot, and especially the onychomycosis, the toenail fungus, mm. which is really where it's used. So you can do the pulsatile dosing where you give one week every month and for three months to six months to treat finger or toenail fungus and it works really well but it doesn't do really anything for you know systemic disease so it doesn't even help in combination with uh the other ones so that's what it in com- we've tried it in combination that's what paper no. i think on this right yeah, but no. no unfortunately it's no. we could use it for example in combination when you have a subcutaneous you know, an element to the invasive disease, and some of these diseases can have. Let's say, like a vaginitis. Let's say a woman had a had a resistant to fluconazole vaginitis. You know, I tend to see this a lot from the gynecologist. They refer to me as the immunologist, uh, and I'll sometimes try. I'll play around with it. You know, itraconazole or fluconazole plus terbenafine. There was like I think a paper that came out yeah. stated and made it. You know, and again we know from HIV and other things. Sometimes you do a combination of drugs. I don't like doing yeah. more medicine, but sometimes yeah. they. Can help. Yeah. yeah and I, I think for that particular instance, you're going to try it and you're going to have to see clinically if, you, okay. if it's helping you or not. I mean, mm-hmm. I personally believe that that in, in the infectious disease world, as you know, we do a lot more combination therapy now. I mean, right. think about how we treat everything. TB, I mean, COVID, the new drug that Yeah, came, no, I know. It's, it's a combination. Yeah, antibody, it was an eye opener. Yeah. Hepatitis. Everything is combo. But for some reason, in, in fungal infections, we're still doing monotherapy a lot. And I, mm. I don't know if that's the right answer. Uh, I almost think we ought to be doing dual therapy where we attack two targets for a short period of intense Uh time and then get, you know, get, you know, and then get rid of the antifungals. I think the challenge is 
for us, as you know, in medicine, we're, you know, we're looking for trials to tell us those answers. And the fungal infections are rare enough that I don't think we're ever going to get them. Yeah, so that's a great point. It's going to be empiric treatment. And I do think thinking about combination therapy up front is I think it's a good idea. I mean, that's yeah. how we're treating infectious diseases now. Right. So. Let me ask you one thing, too, because people always are so concerned, too, when I have to use antifungals. With my liver, I've heard about the liver and I've done this with uh, probably over a thousand patients and I've never seen one problem. Thank God. Is it a, a big, big concern or when would you get concerned, like just to be on the lookout? You know, is it just sort of a little bit random or, you know, because yeah, I mean, I, like because, you know, the gynecologist, again, what I see, unfortunately, they treat some of these women but with three pills of Diflucan who are having recurrent chronic vaginitis. So they'll do it over and over and over again, but just three pills. And, you know, when they come to me, I put them on a longer course and I monitor them. But I, I've never really seen a problem. Well, I think that there's some, I mean, I mean, I, I think the good news is that Diflucan or Fluconazole, I mean, I've had patients on it for years at very high doses. This is treating really? valley fever. Uh-huh. I just see very minimal, if none. I think it's yeah. one of the safest mm. antifungals out there. And so I would feel very comfortable even, I mean, I'm talking 800, 1,000 milligrams oh, wow. a day, wow. you know, really wow. high doses. Yeah, right. I'm using I like think 200. anyone obviously with cirrhosis or, you know, the, yeah, the actual right. kind of end-stage liver, that's where you worry about things. I worry right. more actually about itraconazole, not so much because of a liver toxicity, because it it interacts with other drugs, as you know, uh, and so uh, P450. Uh-huh. And so you have to worry about actually toxicities due to it elevating other drugs or things that's like that. Point. So that's where I worry. And also itraconazole is, is, is absorbed best in an acidity environment. So oftentimes we have our patients take it with a Coca-Cola or a sip of Coca-Cola just to help get it absorbed. You want it sort of on an empty stomach with some acid in there. Um, but otherwise, you know, yeah, I think the, these these drugs are actually, um, uh, uh, you know, very non-toxic. I think as you get into the higher classes of azoles, posaconols, all work. Yeah, do, do you like those? I mean, do you do you find in cases, yeah, they, unfortunately, they're very, very expensive. Expensive, it's, yeah. But I find them, you know, they work very well. Um, you know, they're they're absorbed, you know, well. I think with voriconazole, you can see some eye and some CNS infects. So we know it penetrates really well into the mm-hmm. CNS. But all those effects are reversible when you stop the drug. Mm-hmm. I think the good news there is for, you know, if you're treating a really bad brain infection or something, which of course we do, it's nice to know that voriconazole gets into that area and it penetrates. Um, Do patients get uh, also quickly um, or resistance to this the way they can with antibiotics or do you see that or is that is that an issue as much as with antibiotics or not not so much it's absolutely an issue i I think the good news is that it's it probably doesn't develop quite as fast um, for many of the fungi as it does with the bacteria but you've probably heard about this new candida oris we can't steal the thunder i'm gonna get to that <laughs> okay so anyway that's sort of a different animal that's acting all right. differently okay yeah all right let's get to oh, we're gonna get to that now because as i was waiting as we get to the final section of the uh the, of this podcast and i had to save the best for last now i remember i don't know about you but i remember as a kid watching i think it was the tv movie the blob and that that movie scared the heck out of me. You, know, you saw this red, amorphous, slimy thing devouring people everywhere. The only place I think I remember you could go to was like a refrigerated room. <laughs> you know, <I> never <laughs> forgot that. So tell us what is going on with this Candida aureus infection. It's it seems like it came out of nowhere, and now hospitals are petrified of. And I know you're at the at the front of this. You know, at the CDC tracking this stuff. Where did this thing? come from and why are we you know should we be worried about it that it seems so hard to treat yeah so i mean how did you know as i mentioned to you there are there are you know millions of fungal species out there many of which we haven't identified but interestingly only a few hundred cause human disease and why is that well one theory is that not a lot of fungi thankfully survive at our higher body temperature and so they'll survive in the environment out there but once they get into our bodies they die they can't live at this higher temperature now some fungi have have found the ability to adapt to that temperature or maybe they already lived and that's why we have these pathogens because a pathogen 
can't really be a pathogen in our body without being able to survive. The temperature is one of the reasons we have fevers. That's it's, you know, it's postulated that we develop a fever to sort of right. the right. body's own way, right. Of yeah, trying to kill sense. the organism. The whole immune system. Exactly. Yeah. You know, is that the body, you know, the, these, these organisms can't survive in these higher temperatures. So our body creates fevers. Um, somehow, yeah, this organism, Candidorus, we're not even, we're still not sure where it came from, but it did, did sort of seem to emerge simultaneously about 15 years ago on multiple continents. And wow. it, it, it likes high temperatures. It also likes higher salt environments. In fact, we grow it in the lab under a high salt medium with a high temperature, even higher than body temperature. It, 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 it will grow at body temperature, but if you even raise it up a few degrees, it likes it even more. And so, you know, it, it, it has adapted to being able to easily live in mammals, in us, in, in humans. And, 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 um, and, and for some reason, it is very resistant to the triazole, to the diflucans of the world, um, 90 plus percent at baseline. And then it also has resistance to some of the other two classes. And in, in fact, some cases, it's resistant to all three of those classes I talked about. So that's why it's sort of a bit scary in the sense that it's a it can be pan, as we call pan resistant, so resistant to everything that we have in our armamentarium to treat. Um, you know, we we know this this organism is happy to be resistant. You know, some organism, there's a cost a fitness cost. It, like if it acquires a resistance to penicillin, you know, it's not happy. It's, it's wimpier. This bug is not wimpier when it's resistant. It's just as strong and it stays like that. And it likes to acquire resistance. It's sort of like hyper mutable, as we would say. So it, it can mutate easily. Um the other thing about this organism, we just talked about Canada in our mouth and our in our GI tract. This this organism doesn't seem to be in that area at all. In fact, it's very happy on our skin. Hmm. And so it's 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 and it's very happy on surfaces in, in like hospital surfaces, especially, hmm. it, you know, it, it, and so you find it readily and it stays for months on skin. We found people colonized with this stuff for years. Hmm. And I think, you know, the I think I think the good news for most people is you don't have to worry about this. This is not something that is affecting healthy people. It's really affecting the sickest of the sick people that are in hospitals or in long term acute care hospitals. We're really seeing a problem there where some of where 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 their microbiomes and their gut microbiomes are being manipulated because they're on all kinds of treatments. And so we really think that something changes for you to be able to become colonized with this. And if you become colonized with it, there's, you know, a, a, a one out of 10 chance that it can actually invade and get into your bloodstream. So is it causing rashes like MRSA is doing or not, not really? Not much. We have seen some rashes with it, but no. So how do you know that? So, so how does the patients present? They just have high fevers. They're very sick. Exactly. I mean, if they're going to, if, if it's going to be in their bloodstream, they'll, they'll, they'll oh, be in the bloodstream like a right. type patient, right? You know, mm. fevers, that kind of thing. And, and again, usually these people we like to say are very healthcare experienced patients. Um, you know, at least that's where we are today with with the which is why hospitals and these long term acute care facilities are concerned, you know, because that's really where we're seeing it. You know, I don't know. So you're saying also to just say I want to clarify for the listeners because yeah. they, they could be, again, their own good advocate. So what it sounds like to me, too, I mean, a lot of times you, know, you go into a hospital, you get an IV line, you know, it could be something that's piercing your skin or whatever. Those are entries of the exactly. cannabis into your system. Um, and unfortunately, if hospital personnel. You know, I mean, pretty much everybody gloves these days, but for some reason they're transmitting it potentially to a patient because say they may have, you know, they may be healthy and have Candor aureus on their skin, but they get they're caring for an immune compromised patient. And they put, let's say, an IV or a port, some type of invasive area. You know, that's how we could get into the patient potentially. Well, actually, it's 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 it, you know, it's actually interesting. We think, like you and I uh, and and others that have healthy skin microbiomes, we're not we're not seeing Candidorus on us. So, oh no. Yeah, so I don't think much of it is actually transmitted via the healthcare worker, which, as you know, mm. many other infections can be, unless right. it's actually on some other thing. Like we know mm. equipment has been implicated in outbreaks, you know, thermometers, mm. um, dialysis machines. We know it gets all over beds and bed rails. It just spreads from the yeah. patient's skin into the room. So it's actually sort of interesting. We think that your own, you know, a healthy microbiome may, may actually be defensive against it. It doesn't want to establish, it can't establish itself on us, 
but it does like to exist on surfaces. So, so, so fomites, as we would say, right? It, it exists on all these surfaces. And so we think most of the in-hospital or in-facility transmission is probably happening from patient to environment to the next patient. And that's what it seems like is happening, not so much the healthcare worker. There may be an element of contribution to that, but we don't think that's at least in our in, in all that we've been able to investigate, we haven't found sort of that smoking gun with the healthcare worker or the healthcare personnel. Okay. Well, Dr. Chiller, it was fascinating and a pleasure to talk to you. I learned so much. I hope the listeners do, and they're more aware about fungal diseases. Is there anything else you want them to be mindful of as we uh, as we finish up here? No, I mean, I I, I appreciate you, you know, uh, indulging me and you know letting me talk to you about one of our passions. I mean, we obviously are are here to you know uh, help people become aware. I always like to say, you know, hashtag think fungus. And, you know, I want <laughs> patients to talk to their doctors, you know, ask them if they think they might have a fungal infections. And of course, physicians and other healthcare providers to get information from us and to also think fungus because, you know, these, these, these infections are out there and we are concerned. I think the good news is they still remain, you know, um, less you know, common than many other infections, but unfortunately that, that situation is changing. So it's important for us to think fungus and that's how we're going to prevent really bad death and disability from these diseases. Yeah. I think that's a great uh, ending. And just so you know, the listeners remember, I just always think there's a fungus among us. <laughs> so, thanks so much, Dr. Chiller. I really appreciate your, uh, your time today. Great to be with you. <laughs> 